Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with poet-engineer Richard Blanco. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Good morning. My name is Matt Ewalt, and I serve Chautauqua Institution as Vice President and Emily and Richard Smucker Chair for Education. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the amphitheater this morning. As we did yesterday and will tomorrow, we're starting a little early to, in order to accommodate our friends from On Being as they record these programs for broadcast at a later date. Before this morning's lecture, <clears throat> excuse me, I do have a few announcements. If you were here Monday or Tuesday, you know that our format is slightly different this week. Our usual, usual audience Q&A period will begin around 11.35 a.m. and run for 10 to 15 minutes. We'll then toss back to our guests for 10 uh, closing minutes of their conversation. As usual, you may submit questions through our ushers who will circulate shortly before the Q&A and who can provide slips of paper and pencils. You may also submit questions throughout the program on Twitter via the hashtag CHQ2019. You'll have a brief opportunity to meet this morning's interviewee, Richard Blanco, on the back porch of the amphitheater immediately following the lecture. Please note that out of respect for his busy schedule, we do limit the number of people admitted to the porch and ask that you keep your greetings brief. At 3.30 p.m. today at the Chautauqua Women's Club, Annie Store, yesterday's Heritage Lecture Series speaker and resident scholar at the Women's Studies Research Center at Brandeis University, will participate in this week's Contemporary Issues Dialogue. Seating is limited at the Women's Club. This morning, we welcome students, teachers, and staff from our Chautauqua County Schools who are joining us for this, our seventh Education Wednesday of the 2019 season. We are so very thankful to have you with us today and hope we will see you again during the remaining weeks of the summer. And finally, out of respect for this morning's speakers and audience members around you, and so that you're not that person in the eventual radio broadcast of this program, please silence your cell phones and refrain from using flash photography. This concludes this morning's announcements. Support for this week's programs is provided by the Oliver and Mary Langenberg Lectureship Fund. Additional support for today's program is provided by the Travis E. and Betty J. Halford Lectureship Endowment. Travis and Betty are two individuals who love Chautauqua and give of their time and resources in appreciation for what Chautauqua has meant to their lives. Please join me in thanking the Langenbergs and the Halfords for their dedicated support of Chautauqua. We are graced by the presence once again this morning of our friend Krista Tippett, host of the popular public radio program On Being. Today's conversation will be broadcast on the show at a later date. And joining Ms. Tippett in conversation today is Richard Blanco, who on January 21st, 2013, became the fifth 
presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history, also the youngest and first Latino, immigrant, and gay person to serve in such a role. Mr. Blanco was born in Madrid to Cuban exile parents and raised in Miami. The negotiation of cultural identity and place characterized his body of work. His, the, he is the author of the poetry collections Looking for the Gulf Motel, Directions to the Beach of the Dead, and City of a Hundred Fires. A children's book of his inaugural poem, One Today, illustrated by Dav Pilkey. Boundaries, a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler, and much more. His most recent book of poems, How to Love a Country, both interrogates the American narrative, past and present, and celebrates the still unkept promise of its ideals. Mr. Blanco was named the Academy of American Poets' first education ambassador in 2015. He has been a Woodrow Wilson visiting fellow at Edgewood College and received honorary doctorates from McAllister College, Colby College, and the University of Rhode Island. He's also been featured on CBS Sunday Morning and NPR's Fresh Air. Mr. Blanco has continued to write occasional poems for organizations and events such as the reopening of the U.S. Embassy in Havana. We are so very honored to host him this week on his first ever visit to Chautauqua. Please join me in offering a warm Chautauqua welcome to Richard Blanco and Chris Good morning. What day is it? Wednesday, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, it's been a wonderful first two days, and I'm so happy to welcome Richard Blanco this morning. Um, Richard, you have written, every story begins inside a story that's already begun by others. Long before we take our first breath, there's a plot underway with characters and a setting we did not choose, but which were chosen for us. What I want to do for the next hour here is kind of explore the story of our time a bit through the story of your life and the way you've captured both of those things um, in the language and form of poetry. Um, you were 45 days old yep. when you landed in America. That's the definition of something that was chosen for you. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, how, just if I asked you that large question, just to get going, you know, how would you start to tell the story of our time through the story of your life? Where would you begin? Well, I think, um, as, I, uh, as I like to say serendipitously, I think... I that first, that origin story for me ended up becoming part of my work and part of what I'm still thinking about, the story of our time, and, and more specifically in the context of America and my place in it, the American table, who I am as American, what does it mean to be an American. Um, but as I like to say, um, I was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, and imported to the United States. It gets, <laughs> it gets even, even a little crazier, so my mom... My mom left seven months pregnant from Cuba. I was born in Madrid. And they went 45. into exile. Exile. First to Madrid. First to Madrid. Where, yeah. So where I was born, and then 45 days later, um, I emigrated once again. So by the time I was 45 days old, I belonged to three countries and had lived in t two world-class cities. And I think that I think writers, I think artists in general, I think all of us, when something like that really 
some kind of origin story like that really imprints us. And of course, I, I don't know it's imprinting at the time, but when I start writing and thinking about that big question, where am I from, where do I belong in this world, um, I think it brings it up to speed then in the context of your life as an adult. Um, and thinking about, yeah, those big questions, um, because in some ways, I think I never really felt part of the American narrative, or I should say the idea of question and home, the idea of home was always a big question. Right. It's still a question that I'm still, a story that I'm still trying to unpack. And it's gone through many arcs and um, um, periods of love and hate, periods of confusion and delight. So all that is really sort of still what I'm working on even in this latest book. You know, how to, I think in a way a question that Whitman was also working on. What is, a, what is an American yeah. and what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to belong to a country really in yeah. that sense in this day and age? where that idea is just becoming a little blurry. Shifting, yeah. Shifting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could say that that question of home, what home is and how it feels and how we claim it is part of the human drama for everyone. Mm -hmm. But when it is an immigration, an immigrant story, it just gets, it's in technicolor from the very beginning. Um, and we're going to talk some more about that. Sure. I, um, I wonder, was there a religious or spiritual aspect to your childhood, to, those, to, the, to your formative years? Um, you know, I, I guess I grew up um, uh, Roman Catholic, Cuban, Latino, Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic parochial school all my life um, since kindergarten. And I think there was an interesting base set up there for me, but, um, you know, nothing that I really connected uh, at the moment in, at that age. Um, but I think it came back. It came back somehow. Um, there was something that was, there was, there was a tone that was set for my life. Um, and part of how it came back was actually how I experienced spirituality or grace, which is our, our theme, right, is started happening with writing, mm. right? Writing opened that door, that connection to the divine, to some, some, some connection to the universe, to things that be. And I considered writing my spiritual practice. But again, I think there was, there was a base to that. And, um, and also a little more complicated than just Roman Catholic because there's a cultural element to it, the Afro-Cuban uh, idea of, the, the, the Afro-Cuban idea of Santeria and ancestral worship. So that also made it into the writing in a way because so much of my urgent, so, so much of my motivation to write some of these poems was to document the lives of my ancestors in some ways, their story, their journey, the story I came, I came from, as you said. Yeah. Um, I feel like as I've delved into your work, like the full body of your work, um, you are reflecting on and articulating um, aspects of, yeah, again, like the immigration story of humanity in a way that is, that, that, that with a complexity and with all kinds of layers, that although this is a moment in American life, not for the first time, but again, <laughs> where, you know, we've turned, you know, we, we speak about immigration often in terms of issues and news stories. And I feel like you bring to life a fullness of that experience, which is a human experience. And so I really, I want to kind of draw that out because I feel like it is very present um, very relevant to how like we are all inhabiting this moment and our the fullness of our imaginations 
about this aspect of the American story and the human story. I mean, you were, I did read in your, um, one of your, I think your memoir that you said, you, you know, you grew up learning about America and kind of internalizing America through reruns of Brady Bunch, <laughs> Leave it to Beaver, and My Three Sons. And when I read that, I thought, oh, that's terrible. And then I realized I watched all those shows also. That's what I grew up on, so we've all come a long way. <laughs> I'm binging Donna Reed right now. Um, <laughs> um, the, you, know, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, when I first began writing, um, and again, I, I, I say that as a sort of a starting point where I started to ask these deep questions. That's why I always say, writing makes me think and thinking makes me write, and there's a circularity to that as you dive deeper into questions and into yourself and into your soul, into your mind and heart. Um, yeah, you learn when you write, you also learn what you think that you didn't know you were thinking. Right. <laughs> exactly, and that's yeah. part of what keeps me addicted to it. Yeah. But the, the story of writing, um, at first I shied away from this idea, of who wants to hear about some such a particular story about a little chubby gay kid from a working class family in Miami? Who wants to hear that story? You know, I, you, we, we don't realize how important and interesting our stories can be when they're made art. And so I kind of always had sort of a little bit of a conflict with that because I was like, well, is my work being well received because I got a cute story to tell or is it because it's good art, right? Right. Um, and I think um, it's always been a question I've tried to negotiate and then thinking about audience and readers, right? And thinking about whether or not, how am I a catalyst? How am I a bridge to not only understanding my life, but understanding for that others can understand this idea of the immigrant experience or exile experience. And through the years to get to, to sort of zero in on what you were saying, I finally embraced the idea that in some ways, especially in our contemporary society, we're all in exile. Yeah. We all have immigrant experiences of some kind that weren't happening exactly 100 years ago. I mean, you move from Miami to Seattle, you're going to have an immigrant experience, right? Right. You move from right. Chicago to, uh, to San Antonio or yeah. from, you know, you get the picture. And I think what Latino writers and immigrant writers or ethnic writers have been doing, and I count myself, not, not single-handedly, but in a pantheon of a kind of a body of work, is set a template for what is, I think, a very contemporary trauma that we're going through in some ways of mm -hmm. dislocation, location. Um, you know, families didn't d disperse the way, just even 50 right. years ago, families well, yeah. didn't disperse as much. Um, you didn't, you know, you didn't you hear a lot of You home. hear a lot of stories about, especially like when, it, when the immigration was mostly European, which was true here until the mid-60s, right. you know, that one person went ahead, right, right. and prepared the way. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and there's a, there was a severing of those cultures too, right? Yeah. My cousins now, most of my first and now my second cousins have come to, from Cuba in the last, you know, decade and a half or two. And unlike my mother, who never saw her mother again, whose mother passed away and she was never able to go back, yeah. my cousins are on FaceTime the next week. Like, so even the idea of immigration is also sort of changed and altered, yeah. but it's something we're constantly, we can, we can be exiled in social media too sometimes, we can be isolated. We, so I think, 
I think I try to write from that. Anything I write, you know, the universal is in the particular, right? Yeah. And I always try to think, what does this particular story have to offer universally? And try to write it from that perspective. We've all asked that big question, what is home? What is home, yeah. You know, it's, a, it's like asking, what is love? You yeah. Know? And it changes. And, and it changes, complex. right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, something that just is kind of feels... Um, like a, a large context for a lot of your reflection is on the one hand, and I think especially from childhood on, there's a, at one and the same time, kind of that, that idealized idea of America that came through the Brady Bunch um, and comes through in many other ways, but also a yearning for the lost home. I mean, a, a deep curiosity. I mean, you sometimes describe it as just in passing as my parents' island paradise, right. Cuba. And there's this, I wanted to read, there's this, um, in, the, in City of a Hundred Fires, this is how you start a poem called Havani, Havana, Havanasis. Yeah. yeah. In the beginning, before God created Cuba, the earth was <laughs> chaos, empty of form and without music. <laughs> <laughs> The spirit of God stirred over the dark tropical waters and God said, let there be music. And a soft conga began a one-two beat in background of the chaos. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you read that wonderfully, by oh, the way. Oh, thank you. Well, say, thank you. It was a little weird when you really did that. was like perfect timing. I loved it. Oh, well, wonderful. <laughs> that makes me happy. Um, but then I wonder also if you would read kind of as a, as a, as a counterpart to that in, um, in this book, page three, America, mm. starting, do you have this one? Oh, because I know I, I have it. So I have it for you. I told you, you're not going to have to do any work if you don't want to. <laughs> no, it's on page four. Maybe, I mean, this is long. I did say to, I did say to Richard that um, uh, because this is radio, um, short poems are better. And he doesn't really do short poems. No, Cubans don't like short poems. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but his po your poems are very narrative. Right, so, exactly. So um, we're going to hear some great poetry um, today. So maybe start, because this is just so wonderful, like start here at number four, and then you can read through. <laughs> From section four, you said? Yeah. And then on to the end? Yeah. Okay, great. So the context here, just so everyone knows, it, Thanksgiving is, of course, for an immigrant, for an, almost any immigrant group, it's just one of those things we don't get. <laughs> and we try really hard. And in Latinos, or at least in my, in, in my Cuban community, we call it sangiving, like San Pedro or San Ignacio. So it's, it's a whole other kind of feast day. Um, and, and we were saying it's true, there's, there's still sort of a yearning between this, this mythic homeland that is Cuba that I don't really know and this mythic homeland that is the Brady Bunch house, which I want to buy someday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you'll see this sort of Ricky, this is all in the context of Thanksgiving and Ricky trying to negotiate those two, those, those two yearnings. 
A week before Thanksgiving, I explained to my abuelita about the Indians and the Mayflower, how Lincoln set the slaves free. I explained to my parents about the Purple Mountain's majesty, one if by land, two if by sea. The cherry tree, the tea party, the amber waves of grain, the masses yearning to be free, liberty and justice for all until finally they agreed. This Thanksgiving, we would have turkey. <laughs> as well as pork. Abuelita prepared the poor fowl as if committing an act of treason, faking her enthusiasm for my sake. Mama set a frozen pumpkin pie in the oven and prepared candied yams. Following instructions, I had to translate from the marshmallow bag. <laughs> the, table, the table was arrayed with gladiolas. The platter turkey loomed at the center on plastic silver from Woolworths. Everyone sat in green velvet chairs we had upholstered with clear vinyl, except the Carlos and Toti seated in the folding chairs from the Salvation Army. I uttered a bilingual blessing, and the turkey was passed around like a game of Russian roulette. <laughs> Dry, Gilberto complained, and proceeded to drown the lean slices with pork fat drippings and cranberry jelly, esa mierda roja, as he called it. Faces fell when Mama presented her ochre pie. Pumpkin, calabaza, was a home remedy for ulcers, not a dessert. <laughs> Tia Maria made three rounds of Cuban coffee. Then Abuelo and Pepe cleared the living room furniture, put on a Celia Cruz LP, and the entire family began to merengue over the linoleum of our apartment, sweating rum and coffee, sweating rum and coffee, until they remembered. It was 1970 and 46 degrees in America. After repositioning the furniture, an appropriate darkness filled the room. Tioberto was the last to leave. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. We still have both, by the way, <laughs> pork and turkey. <laughs> <laughs> so before we move on and keep going with a more poetry, <clears throat> I do want to note that although most Americans first came to know about you as the poet of a presidential inauguration, you uh, were a civil engineer before you began to write. And I, were you still a full-time civil engineer when you delivered the inaugural? Um, yes, yes. Yeah. So this has been, this has life. essentially been your career, which I find fascinating. And at first I think it might sound like a surprising uh, juxtaposition, but the more I thought about it, it makes a lot of sense because it's mm -hmm. about design and structure and patterns, right? And Yes. You got that. You hit that right on the nose. I mean, as careers, they're obviously different, right? Career paths and sort of you're not in a cubicle all day. But um, I learned a lot about writing poetry from my math classes in terms of structure, logic, patterns. As they say, musicians say, music is very mathematical, right? Yes. So, so that lent itself to writing. And vice versa, um, being a civil engineer, I had to engage with a lot of public, a lot of communities and towns. And, and being, a, being a writer, being a poet, which is in some ways a study, a, partly a study of human nature, really built my sort of skills in terms of trying to you know, understand people, their no nuances of what they're saying, what they're not saying, and tease out of them their emotional relationship to place and home. 
and projects that I, were civil projects for everyone to enjoy, which ironically is what my poetry is about, trying to find a psychological home, but also in, this, in, the, my, in my engineering, I was in a way creating brick and mortar home, right? A sense of home by, with brick and mortar. Um, and it's really interesting because I think it speaks also, you, got, you hit it right on the nose, like it's not that different, but I think it speaks to our general uh, attitude, well, and still how we silo education and, oh, you're an engineer, it's getting worse and worse right. I think, these days. Right. Uh, you're an engineer, you don't need to learn how to write. My job was 50% writing, and I didn't start writing until I stepped into my consulting office and had to write, and that actually led to my love of language in, in a way too. Right. It was, I started exploring language, and then I got deeper and deeper into it and became the go-to person and the senior partner because of my writing, right, yeah. your job. Yeah. An engineering proposal that gets in a $40 million job is nothing but a narrative, right? An argument, a persuasion of how our firm is the best firm, how this, our vision for the project. But it is funny sometimes because sometimes interviewers get it wrong. They're like, you know, the, the romantic story is that I was forced to study engineering because I'm a working class, you know, family, and then right. the, I discovered poetry and the clouds parted and the cherubs right. came down and, like, <laughs> and I was like, and I always, yeah. my response is, you know, I really, really wanted to go full time into poetry because there was so much money, but... <laughs> yeah. But I really felt an ethical ab obligation to stay in engineering. And so <laughs> there, there's kind of a practical matter, but I loved the balance too. And it created, for me at least, I'm a left brain, right person. I love the balance. And I guess I just want to say for writers out there too, and those, those um, especially young writers that are thinking about becoming writers for, as professional writers, that just because you have another career doesn't make you a sellout. In fact, as long as you keep a focus and your vision and you find something that works for you and every journey and how you come to do something is unique. Um, and I'm proud of, I'm proud of having that, those sort of seemingly contradictory um, careers and, um, and vocations. Yeah, yeah, and I, <clears throat> I, love, I love the way you describe what is actually true that the, that the, that the what is it, that the emotional and psycho, practical and emotional needs um, that you need in a good design. Mm. That like poetry is another way of delving into those things. Um, and we do try to separate, we pretend like these are separate disciplines when it's about being whole. It's, it's all one thing. I mean, if we, think, thing. if we think upon sort of any innovation or any sort of breakthrough, it's really about synthesis of yeah. seemingly disparate uh, or non-related knowledge or pieces yeah. of, of knowledge. Um, and and I, yeah, I, I try to practice that in my engineering. Um, and I have my sense of place, have like, it's not quite a theory, but the way I've been thinking about it lately, as an engineer, that everything has a physical landscape, an emotional landscape, yeah. and a natural landscape. So if you just look around this room, right, we live our life in space, in physical reality, but there's something else going on here that's an emotional imprint. If this building goes, mm -hmm. something's lost. If this building is not filled with that emotion, something's lost. And then you have the natural landscape, which is the universal home, which is the lake just, just across the street. And I think those, the way those three things combine form our sense of place and belonging and connection. Yes, so, <laughs> so all of that is another way to speak 
um, to the true complexity of these themes that for you are so important, for all of us are so important, of place and belonging and the fullness of that and our wrestling with that. I mean, I have to say, um, you, you know, and for you, you've said this and you, you write about it too, that that, 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 you've, that it's been something of an obsession for you all your, all your career about the specific question of uh, what you said, you know, sorting out my cultural contradictions and yearnings and what it meant by contrast to be or not to be an American. Um, one thing that really struck out, struck out with me as I um, have gone to know you is uh, that also is part of this story of what Americans, what it means to be an American is that Richard Blanco is not really, it's a part of your name. Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, I interviewed Martin Sheen, who is Ramon Estevez. And, uh, and my, my, our executive producer, um, who I've always known to have two names, it turned out, after I'd known her for many years, that she's reclaimed, she's a Colombian-American, yeah. all of her names. So, so tell us your, your full name that you were born with. My full name, and so, uh, is technically uh, Ricardo de Jesus Blanco Sanchez Valdez Molina because I was born in Spain and they tack them all on. <laughs> but it, it's funny because naming is like one of those things about sort of also sort of origin stories. Naming, naming is such an interesting thing and in how we rename ourselves or not. Yeah. Um, I love how rock stars rename like Freddie Mercury. Right? <laughs> like yeah. there, there's, there's the name you're given and then there's the name that you, you try to, you take on or you feel you, t you describes you or captures you in a different way. The problem, not the problem, but the backstory beyond that, that I don't think I've ever quite written about. But, so I was named after Richard Nixon. Um, and um, because it had nothing to do politically because my parents are in Spain, I'm born, they just wanted to come to the United States, so I was named Ricardo after Richard Nixon. Jesus, because <laughs> my middle name is Jesus, because my mom on that transit line of flight said, if we make it alive, I'll, his middle name, her middle name will be Jesus. And, right. and then um, um, I was supposed to be a girl from, you know, the old tales of how you, you're, you're oh, yeah. wounded. So my name was gonna be Charity, Caridad, so it would have been Charity of Jesus. I was like, <laughs> so, the, the, as I look back, the way I would have liked to rename myself, yes. which would have been like, I put Richard because I'd like the contrast of the Anglo and, right. and, and, then, the, and then white, um, you know. Is it true? Blanco. Did you ever think about calling yourself Richard White? Was that? Well, my, my, my standing joke now is Dick Jesus White. <laughs> so that's, my, <laughs> that's like... Okay. Straight, straight Pulitzer Prize just for the name, right? <laughs> and, and I think it's comical because in Protestant, in, in Protestant world, n nobody names their kids Jesus, but it's so no. common in, in yeah. Roman Catholic yeah. Latino society. Yeah. To, but it, I, it, it just doesn't translate. So, I mean, Richard Nixon and Jesus, and they wonder why I became a poet and an engineer. Like, <laughs> 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 um, I feel like we could keep going on that for the next yeah. 45 minutes. It would be really fun, but we're going to change. We're going to turn the corner. Um, we at On Being, we have put poets on the air the last two election weekends, and I think we'll probably keep going with that practice. Um, 
Uh, I lived in divided Berlin in the 1980s. I've experienced in my lifetime how poetry rises up in culture after culture, especially in moments of crisis, um, especially when um, official discourse and words are failing us or inadequate for what we have to grapple with. And when we really have to reach for new language and new ways with language, among other things, to give voice to what we need and want to give voice to. Um, I, you know, it, it, in, in a way, it's, it, you know, it's, a, it's a corollary to what you described mm -hmm. about the synergy between engineering and poetry, that we, we have to meet the practical needs with our emotional needs, the psychological with yep, the political. Yep. Um, you've quoted Elizabeth Bishop somewhere saying, it's not about what's said, but about what's not said. And I also feel like poetry leaves room for silence. Mm, and yes. poetry um, makes room for questions that are unanswerable and that for them to sit there. Yeah, I, I, the, more, uh, uh, the more I've been in writing and the more I'm into poetry and obviously thinking and writing about poetry, I'm starting to see it more con uh, connected to the idea of how music um, happens in us, happens as in the writing of the poem and also how it imprints in us um, in the same ways that sometimes we can hear a song and we're not exactly sure the words are saying something, but there's an imprint that's something we can't always place the finger on. Yeah. Um, my father moved through dooms of love, through sames of am, through halves of give. I have no idea what that means. But there's a pleasure, and I actually don't want to break it down that much, but there's a beautiful pleasure. Yeah. I know what it means on another level. And those empty spaces, like in music, I think that poetry affects us that way, and it's not usually taught that way. It's taught like, let's pin down the frog in anonymity class, right. and let's pull it apart. And that's important, too, to a certain degree. Yeah. But um, it's not usually taught to just let it be in us and let it breathe in us. I don't know where the Hotel California is <laughs> or how to get yeah. there, but I love that song. And, and how we, we can read poems over and over. All, everybody has a favorite poem, right? Okay. We can read that poem over and over again. We rarely go back and reread no, re novels or memoir. Right. And it's like music. You can always hear your favorite song over yeah. and over again. Well, and to your point also, um, I, I, you know, I also think poetry got, uh, it, yeah, it became this uh, scholarly pursuit for some people and not for others. And, um, and yet we are all hearing poetry and enjoying it and claiming it in, through songs all the time. And, you know, in the, Bibli you know, the Bible is, and, and actually all, I, every, every religious and spiritual tradition I can think of has always known to convey that there's some truths can only be conveyed through poetry. The Psalms, I mean, yeah. their prayers. The Book of that, Job is an epic poem. Yeah, the the yeah. prayers, that's one of the things I say before yeah. I get up to read is always the prayer of St. Francis. There's this beautiful meaning, but also language in there. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just, it sets my tone in a way that I, it sets, it grounds me in a way that's, that's not just spirituality, though that's a big part of it, but it's also language. I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's a subject that, that I continuously sort of try to think about, evolve, and try to create in my own work. Um, and it's really interesting when you come to think, if my statistics are correct, the only poet to ever win a Nobel Prize is 
I always say, want to say Thomas Dillon, but <laughs> it's Bob Dylan, right? Yes. And so yes. there's something, and in other cultures, the connection of poetry to folklore is really engaging. The, the, yeah. that, that, that sort of crack or that divide between what is music and what is poetry is not as prevalent. Yeah. It's, as Lorca would say, I think something about el cuento hondo, like the gypsies are the poem, the poetry, those songs are where poetry comes from. And, um, and I personally try to always, when I meet with teachers, when I meet with educators, when I meet with students, to try to get them into that space a little bit more. Um, and if you think, I'm thinking now even in the 60s, how much music was a part of, you know, of, of, of the changing of consciousness, right? Yes. And, and it yes. was poetry. It was yes. the word lyric, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think what I'd really like to do um, is get into your newest volume, How to Love a Country. And... Um, and, 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 and I'm going to ask you to read some poems, and then let's talk about what... Let's not, yeah, like not take apart the poem, but <laughs> where that came from in you. Um, uh, there's a, is, it, is it right at the beginning of this book you have this line? Yeah, before, the, before Adrienne Rich and James Baldwin, <laughs> tell me with whom you walk, and I'll tell you who you are. You have that in Spanish and English. Yeah. Is that, is that, you, you don't attribute that to anybody, is what is No, I, uh, I had to do it research, it's just a popular idiom. Uh-huh. Um, I had to contact my translator and make sure, did some research that this wasn't, or what was the origin of that, but he says it's fair use, there's really, it's never been attributed to any, even an, an anecdote of a story or any one person. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a really popular sort of idiom, a saying in Spanish, dime, dime con quien andas y te diré quien, King it is, yeah. Just, and, and I, I feel like this question is not great because I feel like it's very, that came from your gut to put this in the front, yeah. but, but just say what that means to you as re- literally the first words before any poem, before anything else. Well, I, I mean, I was thinking in this book in particular, I, it was a very, um, um, I took a lot of chances in this book because I broke out of just talking about my sense of home or my Americanness or, or you know, just my lifetime and just my story. Um, and started, like I say, I, I think I moved from the poetry of I to the poetry of we. And so I started thinking, who am I walking with? Who has come before me? Who has walked before me, right? And this idea of ancestry, again, of stories, you're born into someone else's story right. and then you walk and then you give that story to someone else. But I was thinking, who are we, right? Who are we as a country? And, um, and how are we walking together? And there's a, a beautiful also, um, maybe it was inspired also my department, uh, one of the department heads at uh, my alma mater, um, she's, uh, she has a saying from the Caribbean that says, walk good. <laughs> Which is your, what your mom tells you, walk good. Right. And so, and I was thinking about, you know, what is the company past and present? Who are we walking with? Mm. Um, and how together, um, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I said to you before we came out here, if, if you feel called to read anything from any of those books, you may, you may do that. But I'm going to propose some, sure, I, sure. I, I pulled some out that, um, uh, you know, um, it's interesting, I, 
Uh, you you use the word Im- immigrant. You know that that's kind of the way you describe your family story. I think most often, or you know, you exile a bit. I, I had a conversation um, last year about Hannah Arendt, um, who wrote a lot about you know exile, mm-hmm. and the conversation I was having with the with the scholar of Hannah Arendt who is, works with refugees now, right. um, is how you know what happens to our imagination about these humans when we use the word immigrant or refugee or what I'm so aware of now is what the word migrant Mm -hmm. has done, how I think that language makes an abstraction of people and and creates an ability for us to separate. Um, Anyway, this is just on my mind. And, And then, you know, you wrote this poem called Complaint of El Rio Grande, Mm -hmm. which is, again, looking at this entire drama from a whole different angle, which is this natural piece of the natural world that is crossed and that in that moment makes of people whatever that thing is. You want to read that one? Sure, I'd love to. Page nine. Give me a lot to think about there. (laughs) But we'll read it first, like you said. So uh, this... uh, do you have the page there? Do I what? Do you have the page there? Oh, page nine. Nine? Yeah. Okay. Yes, I do. I did my I, homework. I should know it's my own book. Yeah. <laughs> it, it happens all the time. Right? <laughs> um, it's like, I didn't know that poem was in there. So, um, like, to echo back what you were saying, why we reach for poetry and try and find different language that opens up a different awareness, a different kind of consciousness. I've been hearing about sort of the Mexican-U.S. border since I was a kid. And I mean, I'm almost 30, you know. (laughs) Um, I'm almost 40. (laughs) You're 25. (laughs) Um, But I was really, I think we all in some ways are just sort of had it with this issue, right? In 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 the context of, you mean to tell me that we can't, not just as countries, as, as a Western hemisphere, come to some kind of fa- fair, amicable, humane, uh, to this problem that is not, we're making it a problem, right? Um, and so I thought, how, thank you. And I thought, and, you know, and it, and it gets abstracted and it gets politicized, yeah. overly politicized. And I thought, how can I do this is mm. let the river speak. And let the river, so this is a persona of a boy poem in the voice of the river to sort of let all humanity have it. <laughs> the river sort of pointing a finger yeah. at us, so to speak. Complaint of a Rio Grande. I was meant for all things to meet, to make the clouds pause in the mirror of my waters, to be home to fallen rain that finds its way to me, to turn eons of loveless rock into lovesick pebbles and carry them as humble gifts back to the sea which brings life back to me. I felt the sun flare, praised each star flocked about the moon long before you did. I've breathed air you'll never breathe. Listened to songbirds before you could speak their names, before you dug your oars in me, before you created the gods that created you. Then countries, your invention, 
Maps jigsawing the world into colored shapes, caged in bold lines to say you're here, not there. You're this, not that. To say yellow isn't red, red isn't black. Black is not white. To say mine, not ours. To say war and believe that life's worth is relative. You named me Big River, drew me blue, thick, to divide, to say spick and Yankee, to say wetback and gringo. You split me in two, half of me, us, the rest, them. But I wasn't meant to drown children. Hear mother's cries, never meant to be your geography, a line, a border, a murderer. I was meant for all things to meet. The mirrored clouds and suns tingle, bird songs in the quiet moon, the wind and its dust, the rush of mountain rain, and us. Blood that runs in you is water flowing in me. Both life, both truth we know to know, be one in one another. Um, I want you to speak, but before I do, uh, this will be the moment if you have questions um, to send them on. We're going to speak up here for about 10 more minutes until we open it up and then we'll come back. So um, I want to just tell you right now, I'm going to ask you to read a Declaration of Interdependence at the end. Okay, okay? Great. So I just want you to know that. And I, I'm gonna, I know you all have a lot of other things to do, but I'm going to encourage you to stay we're going to tease end. you with one poem at the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> at the very end. Okay. So thank you, for, thank you for that poem, and thank you for reading it to us. Yeah. It's, 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 it, that poem still does things to me. Like, I'm still learning myself. It's really interesting, the creative process and, and how that connects. Like, I always say my poems are smarter than me. I'm not that smart, right? <laughs> like, and how they continue. I think, like, song also keep teaching me. And every time I, I go through this, this whole physiological experience when mm -hmm. I read that poem again yeah. and thinking about that river, being that river. Yeah. Um, what, I'm curious about this. Uh, yeah, so one of the things when I, the conversation about Hannah Arendt, it, it was also, I didn't say this, that that in the 20th century, at least for exiles like her, there was a nobility. Right? The word exile yes. had nobility. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was an honor to that. Um, and I do feel like the word migrant has exactly the opposite, right. uh, just the imprint it makes. I'm curious. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, even in my own Cuban community, I've been called out when I say immigrant, I'm, I'm technically an immigrant, right? Because I wasn't born in Cuba, but of course my whole sensibility is exile from my family and community. Um, and as we were talking, or you were talking earlier about those differences between what is language and how we name things is very yeah. important, right? Um, and exile does bring with it the sense of, well, I chose to come here, I'm here, but I'm going back. 
Mm. Right? There's this idea that that you're hoping at least to go back. And it and it and it goes through its whole other a sort of a different psychological process. Yeah. Um, ironically, you know, you just can never you embrace this country like an immigrant because a lot of exile is political exile, yeah. a lot of his yeah. life's in danger. And yet there's this this unending hope that you've lost to paradise and you're going back to it. Um, um, refugee climate, why I choose, I think, the best of all, where I think all those spaces commit is immigrant for me, is because in some ways, whether you're in exile or uh, a migrant or refugee, if, as we should, embrace people um, that are going through things and trying to help each other as decent human beings, that the experience itself of immigrant has a lot of common ground, right? Funny stuff, like, what are we doing? What is Turkey? You know, like our right. cultural mistranslations, learning a language, learning the ropes, you know, how to get about. And I think that... Figuring that out what your of, name is. What's that? Figuring out what your name will be. What your name will be, right? Um, that, that kind of... There's a, there's a really neat meeting ground. And so um, uh, I think... I think immigrant um, has that that kind of. I prefer those words. Though the other words tend to be accurate too, because there's also a sense of what's going on right now. In a way, um, with Mexico, we tend to think it's immigration in the in the old way of like, uh, you know, like European immigration or or Chinese immigration. There's you know that whole rhetoric of are just coming to take our jobs and take advantage of the American dream when in reality there's a lot of political refugee mm -hmm. issues that are going on mm -hmm. that, you know, is part of our country's, it's kind of the present and also, from what I understand historically, ripple effects of all our meddling in Latin America that is creating, you know, I've, I've done work um, in San Pedro Sula in Honduras with, a, with an all-girls orphanage. I've seen this firsthand, and, and people are fleeing for their lives. And mm -hmm. it's, it, of course, not everybody, not across the board. So I, I, there's a place where language, I think, could be, could be more precise and not just, yeah. you know, they're here to, you know, take advantage of this country. There many, many of these folks, as you've heard, some of the stories are destitute, right? Yeah. I wonder if you would read um, Como 2. Sure. Oh, speaking of. <laughs> yeah, for the dreamers. And that's interesting, too, how that, you know, that, that word is, it has a different, it stirs something different in right. us. And, you know, even though we turn all of this into an issue, I think on that, there's actually a kind of cross-partisan um, more of a more of a majority for being open to this in a different way, and yet it's very fraught because yeah yeah there's a little more meeting ground um, yeah. and I think it's obviously because it's um, first of all it's young folks children but also recognizing the inhumanity of of sending someone back who knows no other country right mm -hmm. and um, and that's how this connection to this poem. I was here when I was 45 days old. That was clearly not my choice. Um, that was a story I was born into. And Cubans, of course, had um, special, or had special immigration set. But I, I was thinking, what, oh my God, what if I had to go back to Cuba for some reason, or back to Spain, that I was only there 45 days? And so this is a poem of, of, um, of, of I guess, championing of empathy, of, of camaraderie, and thinking uh, 
uh, about the dreamer, the Dhaka dreamers. Um, it's called Komotu, like you, like me. And there's an epigraph by Roque Dalton, who is a solid Iranian poet. I read it in the original language first. Mis venas no terminan en mí, sino en la sangre unánime de los que luchan por la vida. My veins don't end in me, but in the unanimous blood of those who struggle for life. Como tú, I question history's blur in my eyes each time I face a mirror. Like a mirror, I gaze into my palm, a wrinkled map I still can't read. My lifeline, an unnamed road I can't find, can't trace back to that fork in my parents' trek that cradled me here. Como tú, I woke up to this dream of a country I didn't choose, that didn't choose me, trapped in the nightmare of its hateful glaze. Como tú, I'm also from the lakes and farms, waterfalls and prairies of another country I can't fully claim either. Como tú, I'm either a mirage living among these faces and streets that raise me here, or I'm nothing, a memory forgotten but all I was taken from and can't return to again. Like memory, at times I wish I could erase the music of my name in Spanish. At times I cherish it and despise my other syllables clashing in English. Como tú, I want to speak of myself in two languages at once. Despite my tongues, no word defines me. Like words, I read my footprints, like my past, erased by waves of circumstance, my future uncertain as wind, like the wind, como tú. I carry songs, howls, whispers, thunders growl, like thunder. I'm a foreign-born cloud that's drifted here. I'm lightning and the balm of rain, como tú. Our blood rains for the dirty thirst of this land. Like thirst, like hunger, we ache with the need to save ourselves and our country from itself. Thank you. Are we ready? Are you ready? Okay. Just a reminder that we'll have about 15 minutes of Q&A and 11.50. Turn the program back to Krista. First question, you mentioned how the audiences you write to and for shape how and what you write. Toni Morrison is heralded in part for clarifying possibilities for black American authors to write to and for black American readers without being considered niche or less than. How has your own concept of your audiences evolved over time? Um, yeah, I think that's, that's a great question, by the way. Um, I think it's evolved, or I should say it's, I've, I've waded into it. I think it's a, it's a process that's part of the creative process itself. Um, as I always like to say, and this may be a little bit of a longer answer, but I always like to tell my students, writing a poem is the stupidest, most arrogant, self-absorbed, idiotic, 
thing you can do in the world. And at the same time, it's one of the most generous, giving, selfless, beautiful things you can do in the world. And it has to do with this question. I think poetry, art has to begin in that self-centered space, in that urgency, in that, in that, in that, I gotta figure out why I'm crying about this bird I just saw or whatnot. You know, there has to be a sense of, of urgency, a, a, of understanding who I am and why I'm feeling these things. But it's through the process of art that actually there's a transcendent moment where you suddenly look back and then the poem stops becoming so much as it is yours as it is for everyone else and thinking about and thinking about how my life as an experience that I'm sharing and making art of hopefully connects to others and lets them, it let, let the poem ripples in them and lets them um, have an experience or a memory that also is transform, transformative or maybe that's a very big word, but creates some kind of different, a shift of some kind of awareness. And so I've had to negotiate that, especially because I'm not writing mainstream stories as, as a Cuban American. And so what I figured where that transcendent moment is or where that switch happens or where that bridge or where that poem becomes a bridge is when you dig deep, deep down enough to realize that basically what is the shared common humanity of all of us? Love, hate, fear, loss. And if I, if I get to tell that story in a poem the right way, that will come across. And I think that's, that's it is still very specific. You know, I'm not running away to write sort of esoteric stuff. I love embracing my stories, but I also realize that I'm not just writing for and about Cubans, right? They are, of course, part of my subject matter um, and part of my audience, but uh, my audience is basically any human being that has ever, that breathes, I guess, or any human being that has ever experienced loss, has ever questioned home, um, has ever felt the oddball, um, all those, and, and I try to get the work to, to, to do that, and that's part of a mysterious process. Speaking of grace, to me that's, that's sort of a moment of grace when that transcendent moment happens. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I strive for in, in every single poem. When is the music difficult to hear? And what do you set about doing inside that difficulty? Well, I'm sorry, when is it? I think it's the, the question about when is the music for you difficult to hear? What do you do inside that difficulty? Oh, in other words, like sort of when I can't hear music yeah. slash poetry. Yeah. Um, you know, um, life, especially in the last seven years, has gotten really hectic and really distracting and really, I, I try to remain in this great space of gratitude for everything that's happened, but um, in, the, in, the abundant, in that abundance, there's a lot of distraction, right? And so it's been harder and harder for me to hear the music, so to speak. Um, and what I try to do is uh, very simple practices, nothing too complicated. Um, a very small example, when I sit down to write, I take at least, I'm too much, I'm too Cuban to meditate for too long, but <laughs> I take at least just that, that brief, that brief pause that contains an eternity. I'll just light a candle. I'll put instrumental music. I can't hear music with words while I'm writing. <laughs> um, and I just take a pause and say, I surrender. Or I'm praying for surrender in a way. I'm just saying, let me hear, you know? And, and, 
And it's really interesting because that moment that switch sometimes, it's almost like you're tuning an instrument or you're trying to get a song and suddenly you hear your own voice, the deepest part of your voice, and that's when I can commit to a poem. So that process has gotten a little bit harder. That's a very small way I do it. Uh, walking meditations, playing with a dog. <laughs> um, anything that just sort of grounds me, I should say, in my body and, yeah. and, takes, me so much, and takes me out of the, the mind so much, but really grounds me in my senses because especially with poetry, which is so much about evoking the senses. Um, but yeah, I try to just do little, little things and I'm, I should do more. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've wavered. Sometimes I have a more of a practice. Sometimes I, I, I drift away from that. So um, I'm at a period where I need to get back a little bit more into uh, a more consistent practice. This question comes from Twitter. My Spanish parents, 88 and 85, can to this day recite lyrically, uh, emotionally poetry that they learned as small children. Mm -hmm. Memorization, recitation of poetry was required. Have our children lost something by not committing poetry to memory? Mm. Um, again, this, this relates to the music question, um, and I think yes. Um, my advice always to readers, uh, first of all, I should say, I read my poems out loud for editing. I literally, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm tripping up on my words, something's not right on the page. So. And, and getting comfortable, and getting the poem in your body is so important because it's my body that remembers these poems, not my mind. Um, I think there's something lost in there. Um, it's, it's like sort of, I, to keep on drawing on the music analogy, it's sort of like reading lyrics and not hearing the music. <laughs> and so a poem, the idea of, of the poem being in space mm -hmm. is so important. And I always tell students, uh, or just, uh, anybody who wants to read, read it out loud. Like, just read it out loud. Don't worry about how the poet would read it. Read it out loud. I mean, you think I can sing like Beyonce? No, but I'm belting Beyonce in the car, right? We don't, put that aside. And something amazing happens that happens with music, but also what happens is you're also using more senses. Your body is more alive. You're now breathing. That's the sense of touch. You're now hearing. And we, the poem imparts information to you in a different way. Um, I mean, poetry education today, in some ways, has gotten better, but it's more hit or miss. Some people are coming back to that. Some educators are seeing the value in not, you know, just reading a poem and asking, "What does it mean?" That kind of that kind of teaching. So yeah, we need and and so much. Uh, so one little anecdote: the first trip I went to Cuba. My cousins, who are high school graduates at best, rural folk, um, salt of the earth folk, they said, "You're a poet." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm a poet, I'm a poet." You know, like they said, "Really?" They brought a, a guitar, brought out a guitar, a bottle of rum, and said, "Sing to us." <laughs> <laughs> And they do these improv improvised decimas, which is a fixed syllabic form, on the spot, you know, and, and, and they knew they were national poets. And part of what is how the poetry maintains it life is through the oral tradition, or the oral tradition dimension of it. I'm asking, like, like if you asked the question. I just, I just <laughs> want to, just because I want to read how this, how, how, how do you say it, Havanasis? Havanasis ends. Um, 
God gave them dominion over all the creatures and musical instruments and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, eat pork, drink rum, make music and dance. On the seventh day, God rested from the labors of his creation. He smiled upon the celebration and listened to their music. Yeah. <laughs> He's still listening. <laughs> I have several questions. What led you to begin writing poetry? When did you begin? Um, we just said that briefly, but it was actually an engineering office. So one of the things I try to fight for is also access to the arts, and that's why I love this place. And I mean, please, I just want to thank all of you for being here. Take a moment for that, and the, to be in the fabled Chautauqua that I've heard about for so many, so many, many years. So it's such, it's such grace to be here with all of you. Um, but access to the arts, which is what we're having at this moment, um, um, you know, I had very little access to it because of being working class, being an immigrant, my parents didn't speak English. I mean, we spoke English, Spanish in the home, that was it. My grandmother was also very homophobic, so, and lived with us, and was my primary caretaker, so anything that was too artsy, fartsy, was gay, right? Um, um, I wanted to be an architect one time, she was like, that's too gay. Um, <laughs> so, um, I really started, uh, as I, it was my engineering office, as I said, my job was 50% writing and writing letters, proposals, studies, um, even the idea of language on a, on a set of plans, you can't build a bridge without language. You write something, an instruction or to the contractor, and that bridge is gonna fall mm -hmm. apart. Yeah. So I really got, I really started geeking out on language and like really dove into it deeply. Um, and then I just said, Richard, what's, or Dick, what's the weirdest? <laughs> What's the weirdest thing we can do that I know absolutely nothing about? Let's write poetry. <laughs> and that's how I started writing really bad poems and then, but eventually taking a community college class and whatnot and eventually, you know, I was 25, 26, so the learning curve was fast. Um, so that was good. I, I don't feel like just I wasted it. It was just a couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I got 12 books already. <laughs> You're a prodigy. <laughs> I'm a slacker. <laughs> but I, I will say, I often think why poetry too to this day, and this was just recently I realized in a way why I came back to poetry was because I, I don't, I've never not known two languages. I don't remember not knowing two languages. And then I was translating for my parents at like when I was two or three years old. Not full conversations, but objects. And I realized that at a very early age, I learned that language was not just a way of communicating, but a way of breathing, living, thinking, and expressing oneself in the world. And I think that's essentially, I think, why when I, the door opened to do something creative, I think I went to language. Yeah. Oh, thank you for giving us a couple more minutes, because I want to be a little selfish, and I want us to hear two more poems okay. from you, instead of just one. Would you read? America the Beautiful again. Oh, sure. Page 66. 66. So part of oh, this no, poem... Six, yeah, yeah, 66. Yeah, part of this poem was... I, the title of this book, How to Love a Country, is a statement. It's also a question. 
It's also a, a self-help book um, <laughs> for today. Yeah. <laughs> a how-to book, maybe. Um, one thing, again, like you were saying about language, like why write a book that I didn't want it to, I, I didn't want it to be a one-beat kind of book, and I also wanted to explore different things. And, and I, I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and be poems just of protest. And I just went back to this poem to that uh, patriotism, but that kind of innocent patriotism that you feel as a kid that pure kind of love for ideals, and at least for me, and what this country stands for, I think still stands for. And so this is going back to that space. Uh, and uh, I'll sing a little bit, which is, you can leave if you want. Um, you, have a, you have your chance now. So it's America the Beautiful, which is obviously a reference to the, the song. How I've sang. Oh, beautiful, like a psalm at church with my mother, her Cuban accent scaling up every vowel. Oh, beautiful, <laughs> yet in perfect pitch, delicate and tuned to the radiant beams of stained glass light. How she taught me to fix my eyes on the crucifix as we sang our thanks to our savior for this country that saved us. Our voices, hymns as passionate as the organ piping towards the very heavens. How I sang for spacious skies, closer to those skies, while perched on my father's sunbeat shoulders, towering above our first Fourth of July parade. How the timber through our bodies mingled, breathing, singing, as one with the brass notes of the marching band playing the only song he ever learned in English. How I dared to sing it at assembly with my teenage voice cracking for amber waves of grain <laughs> that I'd never seen, nor the purple mountain majesties, but could imagine them in each verse rising from my gut, every exclamation of praise I belted out until my throat hurt, America, and again, America. How I began to read Nietzsche and doubt God, yet still wished for God to shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood, how I still want to sing, despite all the truth of our wars and our gunshots ringing louder than our school bells, our politicians smiling lies at the mic, the deadlock of our divided voices shouting over each other instead of singing together, how I want to sing again, beautiful or not, just to be in harmony, from sea to shining sea, with the only country I know enough to know how to sing for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. It's towards the end of the book, so you can not leave on, like, the other notes. <laughs> um, I sometimes ask, um, at the end of a conversation, uh, this question, what, what, what's, what makes you what's making you despair right now, and where are you finding hope? And I feel like we're so articulate about our despair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and I feel like you're, you're, um, what is making your heart ache, we've heard. 
in these poems as well. I, I would like to ask you where you're finding joy, where you're finding hope right now. Sure. Um, I think um, it's interesting. I, I was just at that point, I do a small radio segment, which we, it's called The Village Voice, and we share poems, sometimes yeah. mine, yeah. 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 And uh, this uh, it has, it'll air next week, but I called it National Oblivion Day. Um, and the poems were like, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> like, and it was also like, one of the great things that poetry does is it allows us to just go into that space so deeply that somehow it, we, we let go of it, right, in some ways. Um, so I'm looking for poetry that does that, um, that lets me acknowledge and be okay with where we are right now, um, and, and that helps a little bit. Um, but I'm trying to think, um, um, I guess what keeps me hopeful, and this is something that I, I it's sort of in between all this despair and, and, and fear and, and, and apprehension, I, I think one of the most beautiful things that I see, and it happened first with the ban on, on, on Muslim and whatnot, that people, at least in my lifetime, for the first time were standing up for something that didn't direct, affect them directly. That is a democracy. Right? And so, I just love, I just love that we're stepping up and we're realizing, no, okay, this is, oh, I, can, I, I don't have to go to that protest, not above me, but it's that poem from the, you know, first they came for the so-and-so, I remember yeah. that poem, and I think we're finally, uh, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're not waiting for them to come for us. We are stepping up and realizing that the quality of life, the, 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 the virtue of this country depends on every human being's story uh, to a certain degree, that our happiness depends on other people's happiness, and we're moving from a space of dependence to realizing our interdependence. Yeah. And I just think that's beautiful. Even with the questions, I mean, this book was scary in some ways because I'm broaching subjects that somehow I also felt I didn't have permission to write about. Like, you know, about Mexican immigration? Well, no, I mean, there's, there's a common ground there, right? Um, race, um, gender, all these kinds of issues. And I think uh, that's what I'm trying to do is I'm also trying to embrace everyone else's experiences and perhaps coming up with language together or saying, you know, me too, right? So I, I just love that that's happening and it's hard to see between the 24-hour newsreel and, yeah. the, and the, the clips and, the, and so. It, it becomes, becomes a discipline, like almost like a spiritual discipline to take that seriously too. Right, right. Um, it, you know, it's a way of us, some of us, enough of us collectively living this phrase that you have at the beginning of the book, How to Love a Country, tell me with whom you walk and yeah. I'll tell you who you are. So it's us expanding that sense of who we are. And realizing that we're walking together. Yeah. Where we need to, we've always had, but actually acknowledging that now. Yeah. So the book begins with the Declaration of Interdependence. Mm -hmm. Is there a story behind this poem? Um, yeah, there's um, one, one um, again, finding language, finding another angle, finding another dialogue, and how easily stereotyped and typecast we, uh, people can become in the news and also how we do it to ourselves, right? Like, 
oh, you know, you drive a red pickup truck, therefore yeah. you must be right. this person. You shop at Whole Foods, therefore you must be this kind of person. Um, you drive a Subaru, therefore you must be this kind of person. And realizing that that's really, uh, that's really something that's been slowly chipping away at our brains, like this sort of immediate sort of, I wouldn't say judgment, but uh, a, a typecasting um, that sometimes we're not even aware. So I just wanted to break down some of those stereotypes and create empathy across those stereotypes. But it also ultimately comes from uh, a saying, uh, a greeting from the Zulu people that was the real inspiration here. Um, uh, the greeting, they don't say, uh, good morning, like we do, like we did this morning, <laughs> like, good morning, <laughs> I need coffee, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, um, they look at one another right in the eyes and say, I see you. And there's an incredible power in seeing and being acknowledged. And if I'm not mistaken, the reply is, I'm here to be seen, and I see you. And so we've just, we're not seeing each other as clearly, and I think this poem was trying to let us see each other clearly. And it's got declaration of, again, I think I mentioned the next sort of evolvement in our consciousness is from dependence to, inter, to independence is really interdependence, right? That's really where, as a country, as a people, as a family, as a world. As a species. As a species, if yeah. we don't do that. Yeah. You know, in the face of, well, we're, we're touch climate, but, <laughs> but um, declaration of interdependence. And these are excerpts from the Declaration of Independence. Such has been the patient's sufferance. Where a mother's bread, instant potatoes, milk at a checkout line, where her three children pleading for bubble gum and their father, where the three minutes she steals to page through a tabloid, needing to believe even stars' lives are as joyful and as bruised. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. Where her second job serving an executive absorbed in his Wall Street Journal, at a sidewalk cafe shadowed by skyscrapers, where the shadows of the fortune he won and the family he lost, where his loss and the lost, where father in a coal town who can't mine a life anymore because too much and too little has happened for too long. A history of repeated injuries and usurpations, where the grit of his main streets blacked out windows of graffitied truths, where street in another town, lined with royal palms, at home with a Peace Corps couple who collect African art, where their dinner party talk of wines, wielded picket signs and burned draft cards, where what they know, it's time to do more than read the New York Times, buy fair trade coffee and organic corn. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for regress. Where the farmer who grew that corn, who plows into his couch is worn as his back by the end of the day. Where his TV set blaring news having everything, nothing to do with the field dust in his eyes and his son nested in the ache of his arms. Where his son, where a black teenager who drove too fast or too slow, talked too much or too little, moved too quickly but not quick enough with a blast of the bullet leaving the gun, with the guilt of, and the grief of the cop who wished 
he hadn't shot. We mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We're the dead. We're the living amid flicker vigil candlelight. We're in a dim cell with an inmate reading Dostoevsky, where his crime, his sentence, his amends. We're the mending of ourselves and others. We're Buddhists serving soup at a shelter alongside a stockbroker. We're each other's shelter and hope, a widow's 50 cents in a collection plate and a golfer's $10,000 pledge for the cure. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We're the cure for the hatred caused by despair. We're the good morning of a bus driver who remembers our name, the tattooed man who gives up his seat on the subway. We're every door held open like a smile when we look into each other's eyes the way we behold the moon. We're the moon. We're the promise of one people, one breath, declaring to one another, I see you. I need you. I am you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard Blanco. They stayed. I didn't realize I had power to, to, to command them to stay. Oh, yeah.